0: Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the SaturdayBlitz.com podcast, episode number three, and we got a great guest lined up, Aaron Torres, stopping by, one of my favorite people on Twitter and the blogosphere. He runs his own site, Aaron-TorresSports.com, great catch-all site to basically see whatever you want in the sporting world, uh, all sports included, and he's also one of the driving forces behind one of my favorite new college football blogs uh, on the Blogwin Network, that's Crystal Ball Run, great site, and uh, I highly recommend you check it out. It's been a regular feature of Links at Lunch. Uh, looking forward to talking with Aaron. We're going to chat about some uh, East Coast, West Coast, him out on the East, me here on the West. Good to have that cross-country vibe. We're just going to talk about what to expect from the season, and uh, looking forward to getting his word on everything. It's Christmas Eve, ladies and gentlemen. We're down to the final moments. Couldn't be more excited for the season to kick off. So without further ado, let's get talking with Aaron Torres from Crystal Ball Run here on the SaturdayBlitz.com podcast. And welcome back. We got Aaron Torres here, Crystal Ball Run, and uh Aaron Torres-Sports.com. And we're going to talk a little BCS to jump in. And Aaron, want to thank you again for stopping by and uh chatting with me today.
1: Not a problem. Glad, glad you uh, were nice enough to invite me. I appreciate it.
0: And uh in the intro, I was saying that uh Crystal Ball Run, the new college football site on the Blogwyn Network, uh really loving it so far, great work you guys are doing there. And the title crystal ball run, of course, referring to the BCS championship trophy. So let's talk a little bit about the BCS and how you see that unfolding this season. Uh, who are the teams that you like to to get into that race, uh, specifically your national championship contenders?
1: Um, You know, I think it's going to be an interesting year. I, I think, uh, you know, kind of out where you are, I'm not really sold that there's a dominant team in the Pac-12. Uh, you know, the pieces are there for Oregon to make another run, but they kind of start with that really tough game against LSU that seems by the hour to get a little bit easier. It seems like every time we look up, somebody from LSU is getting suspended or getting arrested or getting accused of something. So, you know, I'm not sold on Oregon. I'm not sold on Stanford by any means. And, you know, we can talk about Stanford a little bit. You know, you know, moving over to, this, to the central part of the country, I'm not necessarily sold on anybody in the Big Ten either. I think uh, Wisconsin's probably the best team there. I don't know that they're really a national championship contender. I think that with Ohio State, even before even before kind of the Jim Trestle situation, you know, once uh, you know they lost so much on that defense, and then when the Terrell Pryor stuff went down, I thought they were going to struggle. So, you know, I think we're looking at you know two or three teams that that with the right breaks can make a move from the SEC, and then I kind of think that Florida State's going to be right there out of the ACC. I think that uh, with a few few of the right breaks. Virginia tech could be there from the ACC. And it's funny over at crystal ball run, we've been kind of trading these email chains, chains on how we think the conference championship is going to play out. And I think, you know, you could make a pretty strong case looking at the schedules that both Florida state and Virginia tech, uh, depending on who wins the ACC could be a national championship contender, just because those two don't play each other during the regular season. And the, the breaks really go their way with the schedule. So, um, you know, the traditional, AC, uh, the traditional SEC powers, excuse me, I'm a, I'm a big proponent of Florida State this year. And, of course, Oklahoma, you know, even with the loss of Travis Lewis and obviously the, uh, you know, really untimely death of, of Austin Box, I, I still think that all the pieces are there, especially on offense. Um, you know, I think Landry Jones, there's no reason to think that he's not going to have a huge year statistically, that Oklahoma's not going to be good. And, you know, like everybody else I've kind of mentioned, you know, the schedule breaks nicely for Oklahoma. So I think you're kind of looking at that that kind of core group of teams as real national championship contenders.
0: Now when you talk about Wisconsin, that's a really interesting one to me because you bring over a quarterback, a three-year starter at NC State, and Russell Wilson. But I've been kind of hammering on this uh, on my site and on Twitter throughout the summer that it's kind of difficult for a guy to get thrown into a system right away and be super productive. You saw Jeremiah Masoli granted under a little bit different circumstances, but coming to Ole Miss last year, and people were thinking that was really going to propel them and didn't really end up doing much of anything. How do you see Wilson fitting into that Wisconsin offense, uh, particularly with James White and Monty Ball, 2,000-yard rushers returning?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting you bring up Masoli because I like to consider myself uh, a Jeremiah Masoli uh, expert in in this field, (laughs) and uh, I'll tell you why, because, um, you know, it it was kind of funny when I – when Masoli, it was announced that he was going to Ole Miss, and if you remember, there was some controversy. Or, you know, he was arrested, and then he was suspended, and then he was kicked out of the school when he was arrested again. Um, you know, and I wrote this, this 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 long article about how I thought that uh, – you know, he should be given a second chance at Ole Miss, and uh, I was uh, uh, an Ole Miss fan was very nice to email me and actually invited me down for a game. He said, you know, I like the article, uh, you know, you have an open invitation. And kind of at first I just thought it was a a gag, and, you know, I started trading emails with him, and it was real serious. And I went down, actually, and saw Jeremiah Masoli play in person. It was, I think, their third or fourth game of the year um, against Vanderbilt. And to kind of go back to your point, it was like he never totally fit in with what they were trying to do. And, you know, the way that uh, my friend and I down in Mississippi kind of talked about it was, it was, you know, there were 10 guys on the field that were recruited to do a certain thing And then Jeremiah Masoli had a completely different skill set that had nothing to do with what those guys were recruited to do. Um, And you could tell that he wasn't totally comfortable being that leader after, you know, he was in the program for about six or seven weeks at that point. You could tell he wasn't totally comfortable barking at guys, kind of getting in their faces, telling them, you know, you can't do that, you can't do this. So, uh, you know, to your point on Russell Wilson, I think it's a good one. And I was kind of harping on that same exact point that you brought up uh, myself and, the only thing that I'll say is that uh, Wilson's skill set is uh, a little bit more tailored to what Wisconsin is trying to do. He's, you know, not quite. A, a, he's a, he's a good athlete. Obviously, he's a, a you know a professional baseball player by by default. He's a good athlete, but you know, I I, I do kind of wonder if it's going to be that seamless transition. But you know, you see that he's been voted a captain by his teammates. He's clearly earned their respect, and, you know, it's like you said, you've got 2,000-yard rushers and James White and Monty Ball. Still some talent on that offensive line. You know, they lost a few guys, uh, really good players like Gabe Karimi and uh, John Moffitt, but I I think they're going to be good, and I think that they're going to probably, you know, like anything else, it's going to take some time, but it seems like, you know, this marriage might actually work, whereas, you know, the example that that you and I both used with Masoli in Oregon – it never seemed to really totally fit. And, and I think that this one at Wisconsin might be a little bit better. The big question now is, of course, you know, uh, is Russell Wilson's never really had the opportunity to work with the talent quite that he'll have at Wisconsin, especially running back. And, you know, he had to make a lot of plays himself last year. And, and the the point that our our mutual friend Mike Felder has brought up to me many times is, you know, is he going to try to get that hero complex late in a game where he feels like he has to make a play, or is he going to stick to um, – you know, to the game plan and stuff like that. So I think that that's kind of the big question. Like I just said, I think it's going to take time. But I, I do think that, that given time and, and, and given, you know, his opportunity, I actually think that Wisconsin to be pretty good.
0: Now, Wilson's a guy who I've seen kind of sort of mentioned in Heisman talk uh, with three different players kind of splitting up the, the, the attention of the offense there. That's going to be kind of difficult. The guy that I like particularly, though, this season's uh, E.J. Manuel. And I sort of hate to go to uh, this route because I feel it's a little bit like a basketball analyst comparing any 6'5 to 6'7 player to Michael Jordan. But E.J. Manuel put on about 15 pounds of muscle in the offseason, 6'5, about 250, starting to look a little bit like Cam Newton. Uh, can you see him getting into the Heisman race? And you mentioned Florida State as one of your championship contenders. Do you think that the Seminoles and Sooners, with their big September matchup, could potentially face each other once again in January?
1: Um, well, let's start with EJ Manuel, um, because I have been on the EJ manual for Heisman bandwagon. I, I've gotten the t-shirts printed up and the bumper stickers and everything. So I'll be sure once we're done here to, you know, send you a few in the mail. Okay. But, uh, you know, all joking aside, you know, what it comes down to for me is this. And, and this is a good point that I've talked to other people about, and I'm not trying to claim it as my own. But, you know, you look at um, – Past Heisman Trophy winners, whether it was Cam Newton last year, Mark Ingram the year before, uh, you know Sam Bradford the year before, played in a national championship game. You know, you go back to Reggie Bush, Matt Leiner. You know, the, the one common denominator is that they that they're getting to the last game of the season, and I think that you can't undersell that with Florida State. And kind of the analogy that I've made is is that you know, the Heisman Trophy has, has kind of become this thing where it's usually the best player on the best team as opposed to the best actual football player. Now, mm-hmm. it just so happened that last year with Cam Newton, you know, they were one and the same. But, you know, the thing with Florida State is that I think that the reason that I like E.J. Manuel is kind of a dark horse Heisman contender, I I think it's probably a little unfair to compare him to Cam Newton because, you know, Cam Newton was really a once-in-a-generation player. But it's that you know, Florida State starts winning, and you talked about kind of that or that Oklahoma game. You know, if they if they win that game and they start getting momentum, and they're you know they're already in the top five to begin the year, and they're in the top two or three all season long, you know, all of a sudden. You know, every Florida State game is going to be featured. You know, everyone's going to be talking about them. And the the reason that I like EJ Manuel in particular is because if you look at that roster, there's not a dominant running back. There's not a dominant wide receiver. He's going to kind of become the face of the Florida State resurgence uh, if they do that. So because of that, I do like him as a Heisman Trophy favorite. And then as far as Florida State and Oklahoma, really quick, I mean, I, I hate to jump the gun here, but I, that's the, the two the two teams that I have playing for the national championship right now, to be point blank, is um, I think everybody in the SEC is going to beat up on each other. Mm-hmm. I've already explained the Big Ten and the, the Pac-12, and I just think that the schedules break nicely where, you know, you look at Florida State's schedule, after that Oklahoma game, they go to Clemson, and then it opens up really nicely for them, and kind of similarly to Oklahoma... Um, where Oklahoma has has that big road trip to Florida State. But even if they lose, they're going to have time to kind of make up ground and beat some good teams in the Big 12. So I, I, we didn't plan this beforehand, but I, I love your E.J. Manuel talk. I, I love the Florida State-Oklahoma talk because, quite frankly, that's kind of how I see the season breaking down.
0: What I find interesting about Oklahoma and the Big 12 in general is if they do lose that game, uh, and this is where the, the losses of uh, Nebraska – and Colorado really coming to play without the uh, without the conference championship game is them not having that opportunity to make up and and get another win. But looking back on uh, the two thousand and seven season, uh, which I think is hands down the craziest that's ever unfolded, and since the BCS was introduced, uh, you had a team that had no conference championship game, West Virginia, uh, getting into the hunt despite having a, a, a loss. And uh, West Virginia is a team that's kind of flying under the radar, in my opinion. With uh, Dana Holgerson coming in, and I think he can do some really special things with Geno Smith. Can you see somebody from maybe the uh, from the Big East, the conference that's been kind of kind of the the redheaded stepchild of the BCS, maybe getting into that championship talk?
1: Yeah, no, I, I swear. You know, you and I, uh, we we are seeing this this season kind of breaking down in a lot of similar ways. the the, the thing with The thing with West Virginia, excuse me. You know, for so many years, they, they really struggled on defense kind of under that Rich Rodriguez regime. And then Rich Rodriguez left, Jeff Castile stayed around, and they've been able to put up really good defensive numbers and hold opponents to kind of really low, um, you know, scoring totals. And you kind of look at some of their games last year, and, you know, they, every game was 17 to 10, 17 to 13, stuff like that. And, the, excuse me, the you know, the offense was the problem. And I think that even though the defense lost some guys, Jeff Castile's kind of proven the ability to kind of get the next guy in ready to go and, and, and have him produce over the last three or four years. And then, I, you know, everywhere Dana Holgerson's gone, he's had success. And, you know, he turned this kind of washed up baseball player that hadn't played, you know, real football in six or seven years into a legitimate Heisman Trophy candidate last year in Brandon and year before Case Keenan put up you know, just ridiculous numbers. And I see no reason that Geno Smith, who's as physically gifted as either one of them, uh, can't do the same. I see no reason why... West Virginia shouldn't win ten games this year, and I, you know, it's kind of weird going into a season projecting a team to win ten games. That's a lot of games, but you look at the schedule, the Big East kind of schedule is is manageable. As as for the reason that you said, you know, the, the conference is kind of still kind of trying to figure out who they are. Um, you know, the LSU game that that is kind of the signature game that they're going to have their chance to kind of shine is at home, and you know, it's easy to to not look ahead, but. LSU has two huge games before they even play at West Virginia. And, you know, you wonder with all the turmoil if they're going to be fully prepared for that West Virginia game. So I, I really see no reason why why we can't be looking at West Virginia uh, with 10 or 11 wins. You know, who knows? You, you get a couple breaks against LSU, put up some points, uh, you know, catch them maybe on an off night. All of a sudden, you know, you're, you're going into the last weekend of the season or the last couple of weeks where they're right in the mix. And, and I agree with you. I see no reason to think that they can't, uh, be right
0: there all season long. And the Big East is undergoing a lot of change now with uh, Holgerson coming in, Todd Graham going in at Pitt, Skip Holtz coming into his second year, and he seems like he's doing some pretty good things at the USF, and then you, your alma mater, UConn, bringing on a new head coach, and Paul Pascaloni, who had uh, experience in uh, some successful teams at Syracuse in the 90s. Do you see the Big East kind of turning that corner and getting to where they are going to be in the same talk as uh, the Pac-12 and the Big Ten and the Big 12 uh, in terms of uh, BCS conferences?
1: Yeah, you know, it's a good question, and I feel like I say the same thing every year, but it really does feel like for the first time that there is some stability and that there's some really quality coaches and that they're coaches that might actually stick around for a little bit and you know uh you know whether you mentioned paul Pasqualoni, i certainly wouldn't put him in the top tier of coaches Mm. although he definitely won a ton of games at syracuse but he wants to be at UConn, and, and Doug Marone wants to be at Syracuse. And those are those two guys' dream jobs. And, you know, those guys aren't going to be looking for other jobs. And, you know, Gary Patterson comes into the fold next year, and we know that he's had opportunities to leave TCU, and he's stayed. And I think the biggest thing that the, the, the Big East's biggest problem these last few years is it's hard to have stability when you have this much coaching turnover. And, you know, the, the, the most famous ones are obviously Brian Kelly leaving mm-hmm. Cincinnati, Rich Rodriguez leaving West Virginia. But you look at – I think I heard a stat where at this point, uh, Greg Sciano at Rutgers, I I believe is in like his 10th year or his 11th year right now, uh, he has more uh, tenure than the rest of the Big East coaches combined. That's absolutely true. Yeah, I mean, you know, listen, it doesn't matter if you're the Big 10, the Pac-12, the the SEC. When you have that kind of coaching turnover in every two or three years – coaches are changing at so many schools. It's just, it's hard to have consistency. And, you know, if, you know, Mark Richt, I think, has been at Georgia for 10 or 12 years. Like, I, I tend to think that some of the guys that left the Big East would have the same kind of success that a Mark Richt or that a, uh, you know, a uh, I'm trying to think of a guy who's been around for a while, Brett Bielema or Mac Brown or Bob Stoops. I'm not saying they would be that successful, but I think that you'd see more stable programs. And that's the one thing that the Big East has always been lacking. And it's just been because there, there's so much coaching turnover and you, you recruit a guy for a certain system and then he's playing for somebody else. And that's kind of the situation. So, so you know, again, I'm running long on all these answers and I apologize about it, but... Well, nice, um, but... <laughs> no, I just think that... that if they, if the Big East can retain these coaches, and I think that most of these coaches are happy where they are. I don't think that they're necessarily in a rush to jump to the next job the way that a Bobby Petrino might have been or that a Mark D'Antonio might have been. They can keep these coaches, these good coaches, whether it's Charlie Strong, whether it's doug marone whether it's skip Holtz, whoever it is if they can keep those coaches then i tend to think that they're actually going to be really good and uh you know kind of be in that second tier where you know we can be honest and say that that we're never going to be comparing the Big East to the sec but you know there's no reason on a year-to-year basis that they might not be able to compete with some of the top teams like you said in the pac-12 big 10 stuff like that
0: absolutely and uh as far as the SEC goes, I, I think right now the closest comparison to the SEC might be the NFC West. So in terms of conferences, you know, uh, aspiring to be the SEC is, is a, exactly. a, about as high as anybody's going to get. But uh, I, I want to go back to something you had said earlier about the Heisman Trophy being the MVP of the best team rather than necessarily a top player in college football award because this is a point of contention for me is I feel like this is an award that should maybe go to the best player. I was big on either – and Dominican Sue or Toby Gerhardt winning in oh nine. And um, what do you think it would take for a player from a team that's that goes say nine and three or eight and four to win the Heisman trophy? Uh, does he have to put up numbers that you think are just absolutely astronomical? Or is that a point now where even uh, Barry Sanders in nineteen eighty eight type season isn't necessarily gonna win the Heisman if you if you don't have those ten to eleven wins?
1: Well, you know, I think You know, the the best uh, comparison that we kind of have over these last few years is Tim Tebow, and I guess it was 07, where he put up numbers that we had literally never quite seen in college football before. And I'm trying to pull up the stats really quick. I don't have them on me, but I believe he uh, threw for 20-plus touchdowns and rushed for 20-plus touchdowns, if my memory serves me correct. So, you know, I I think it's got to be one of those kind of years where – where there's no dominant player on a dominant team, and then you know you have a guy who puts up just ridiculous numbers, and you know I, I certainly could see a scenario where where a guy does that this year. Um, you know I, you know whether it be Landry Jones, you know if Oklahoma loses two or three games and Landry Jones still puts up crazy numbers, or whether it's Andrew Luck or whomever, uh, you know I, I don't I don't think that it's the voters' intention. What I what I kind of think happens is is that you know, when teams start out seven, eight, nine and oh, you know, every week all of a sudden it turns into what's Auburn doing this week? Who are they playing? How does Cam Newton match up with this defense? How is this defense gonna stop Mark Ingram? How you know, who's gonna you know who how are they going to stop Sam Bradford? And it just becomes into we're constantly talking about these guys. And, uh, you know, obviously they have to have the numbers to back it up. But I I certainly think that just being on a winning team just puts you in the public spotlight and helps you out. Um, And and so I think that that to answer your question again, I just think it goes back to kind of the right things breaking the right way and just somebody having a great, great year like Tim Tebow did in 07.
0: And one of the guys that really seems to be at the forefront of the discussion, and rightfully so, Andrew Luck, uh, finalist last year, Now, as you mentioned before, the Pac-12 and Stanford in particular looking like they could break any couple of ways. A new head coach, a lot of change on the offensive line. Now, as an East Coast guy, what is your perspective on the Pac-12? I want to hear just in general because a lot of people out here like to bellyache about East Coast bias. But in my opinion, I think the Pac-12 needs to start putting up or else shutting up. And furthermore, just in the Pac-12 in general this season, what what you're really expecting, and what uh, what the general vibe in the East Coast is for this year's Pac-12. Yeah,
1: yeah you know, I mean, I, I think that that you know, maybe I have I'm a little too close to college football. I, you know, I mean, it, it is tough where you know I, the Pac-12 is to their credit is doing. Good things, you know. And the thing that comes to mind to me right away is, you know, that Stanford Oregon game last year was set for eleven o'clock East Coast time, and they moved it up to eight o'clock. And you know, you know, it's unfortunate that those are kind of the steps that you have to make, but 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 they are, you know. And um, I think that the Pac twelve is in a good place. Um, you know, I think that the problem with the Pac twelve was for so many years USC was so dominant, and, and they were fun to watch. Don't get me wrong, but. Um, I think that that the coaching talent, more than the actual football talent, caught up with USC. And um, you know, I've always kind of contended that you know the reason that Pete Carroll left USC had nothing to do with Reggie Bush or NCAA sanctions, and it had everything to do with the fact that he looked around the league and realized that it wasn't going to be nearly as easy as it had been. Um, you know, you look at Oregon; Chip Kelly is clearly one of the or three best coaches, if not the best coach in college football, um, you know Steve Sarkeesian, major upgrade at Washington. Mm. Um, you know Mike Stoops. I know that they kind of have plateaued the last few years, but but I think that he's an upgrade over who was ever at Arizona,
0: John Matovic and that was <laughs> well, There you go. That was a dark age.
1: Well, there you go. I mean, I mean, listen, I'm sure you were disappointed last year, but you got to say like you'll take, you know, going into the season as a top 15 team and then struggling rather than being irrelevant on September 10th, right? Right.
0: Oh, and that's a program that right now is actually on its program uh long for consecutive bowls. So, Stoops has definitely uh set a benchmark at Arizona. It's never really been there before.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, and and I think that that kind of speaks to the whole conference, I just think that across the board the coaching is better, and I think a good way to look at it is like this, who were the two teams that were always right there with USC for for Pac-10 championships you know, four, five, six years ago it was Oregon State and it was Cal, and both of those teams have struggled the last few years and I think that it's a direct correlation to, you know, Oregon State for years was able to get by with inferior talent, uh, not inferior but kind of under the radar, under recruited talent, because they were just really well Coached and now everybody's kind of caught up with them coaching wise. So I think when you look at the Pac 12, I I think it's a a good conference. I think that this year is kind of a transition year. I think that, you know, Washington, Arizona, Stanford, uh, Oregon State, even Oregon, all have questions that maybe they didn't have coming into last year. And, you know, you ask about is there bias, is there not bias? You you know, I'll be honest, I think that you could have made a pretty strong case, and I did. I, I thought by the end of last year, Stanford was probably the second best team in college football behind Auburn and I know that's tough to say because they lost to Oregon but I think you know if you put Stanford on a neutral field against uh you know against Oregon in the last the first week in December I think that Stanford probably wins so mm-hmm. um you know, I don't know that there's an East Coast bias or there isn't, I, but I do think that as far as this year in particular, I think that um, there's a lot of teams with a lot of questions, and, and I think that, that that's not an insult to the conference. I think that's just kind of how the cookie crumbled this year, and, and I fully expect kind of with the guys that they have in place that it's going you know, to have its good years and bad years, and this is probably one of the years where it's maybe a little bit down.
0: Now, is there anybody from that league that you anticipate maybe sneaking up and uh, and interjecting themselves into uh, not necessarily a national championship race, but maybe the Rose Bowl race the way that Stanford kind of did last year?
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, I I think, you know, you can make a pretty compelling case that behind Oregon, USC is the second most talented team. Now, that obviously means nothing uh, because they they can't even play in the Pac-12 championship game, let alone a a bowl game. Um, You know, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on kind of, you know, what you expect from USC just because I look at them on paper and I know you and I discussed how kind of thin they are, especially on defense, but I look at them and I feel like they're going to be able to put up points on everybody. I mean, you know, without me getting off on too much of a tangent, kind of what are your thoughts on USC relative to the rest of the Pac-12? Well,
0: I think SC probably in terms of your first 22 on the offense and defense, probably the second or third best team overall in the league. And I think Matt Barkley is going to have a phenomenal year. The only thing that concerns me about them is there's no depth. Uh, they're coming off a season last year where they allowed four touchdowns, close to four touchdowns a game, which was their previous three seasons combined, basically. And uh, and then they lost guys from that defense, so that's going to be a, a, a huge question mark. And then ever since Bush left, I felt like the running game has never quite gotten to even maybe like 70% of where it was at that point. And that, to me, puts Matt Barkley in a lot of bad positions. I think he's a great player who gets put in a lot of situations where he's having to throw and force things because the running game isn't going. So uh, SC's, SC's a real uh, wild card to me, just in general. I mean, not even in terms of what they are as a team, but in terms of what they can do in the conference. Because if they end up exceeding my expectations, I, I've got them tabbed at third in the division. But, if they can exceed my expectations, then you know you're talking about ruining team seasons basically, and that's what essentially what they're playing for, which uh I think makes for an interesting little uh uh element to the to that conference race is uh just having that that joker that you don't know really what's going to uh, happen with them and having them uh on your schedule
1: yeah you know and to, to add to that point a little bit is I think that, you know, I'm sure one of the teams that you have ahead of USC and that uh, the South division, I think it's called is, um, is Arizona State, and you know, I really don't know what to make of Arizona State because you know, you asked me kind of a team that I think can jump up and steal, steal maybe a Rose Bowl bid or at the very least, you know, finish above expectations. And Arizona State's getting a lot of buzz. You know, they—they, they, I, I watched them enough to never really be like overly impressed by them last year. But mm-hmm. you know, you kind of look at the at, at their games and and they played everybody tough. I mean, they went to Wisconsin and lost by a point. They had Oregon on the ropes until late, and I'll I'll admit that as an East Coast guy actually fell asleep halfway through that game. I remember watching it. It was like a 10:30 kickoff and it was a great game, but but I think they had Oregon, you know, right around tied at halftime and just couldn't hold on in the second half. They might have even been up. Um, you know, they lost to USC by a point, lost to Stanford by four. So you kind of look at them and there's no reason to think that they can't be that team that jumps out. Um, you know, I guess the thing that I have with, with Arizona state in particular is Quarterback uh, Brock Osweiler, Weiler, however you pronounce his name, you know hasn't played a lot. I know that that Stephen Threet was kind of the guy last year, and you know unfortunately his career is over now. I, I just don't know what to make of them, you know. So when you ask me about like a, a team that I think that could jump up, I definitely think it's Arizona. But you just kind of hear these stories about kind of uh, you know Vontae's perfect kind of getting in trouble and they've had some injuries and they they're unsettled at the quarterback. I, I think they're one of the more interesting teams not only in the Pac-12 but nationally because you know, I could see them going, you know, 10 and 2 and playing in the Pac-12 Championship game and I could see them going, you know, 6 and 6 and playing in uh, you know the Las Vegas Bowl, you know. And mm. I think that, that everything in between is kind of is kind of, you know, just kind of how, how things fall for them and and I think like I said, I think they're kind of one of the more interesting teams in the country.
0: Now, one thing I kind of want to uh, not necessarily wrap up on, because if you want to tangent off this, please, uh, by all means, but...
1: Uh, i tangenting all night, so... It
0: <laughs> which, is, which is good. It makes me feel like my terrible questions aren't so bad, so that's good. I um,
1: talk too much, but anyways, continue.
0: Yes. Um, now, I know beforehand, uh, before recording, I said that I wasn't going to go off into non-AQ territory, but talking BCS, I'm going to have to. Can you see anybody from one of the five uh, non-AQ conferences getting into the BCS, uh, not just the BCS bowl race, but potentially getting into that national championship race? If you have a situation where there's only one or even no uh, big six teams that are unbeaten, could an undefeated TCU or Boise State play for the title?
1: certainly happen um you know i think if it does happen i think it's gonna have to be boise uh you know tcu i think um the biggest thing with tcu is not only are they breaking in a new quarterback but their four toughest games are on the road Hmm. and two of them are in the first two weeks of the season and i and i think that, that that's just a brutal way to ask you know Casey Pachal or however you pronounce his name, to kind of you know welcome him to college football. Not to mention that they lose a bunch of guys on that defense too. Now the defense is always good, but but I'm more concerned with the offense. And I I, I think TCU is going to be really good, but I, I had them I think at about 23 or 24 in kind of my preseason ranking. I, I just I think that this is kind of a 10 and 2 ish type year, and as they kind of build back towards next year, so I think Boise is kind of the most realistic thing, uh, most realistic team in this sense. I, I mean I certainly don't see anybody. from Conference USA or the Sun Belt or the MAC or anything Mm -hmm. um, competing, you know, the WAC is kind of, everybody's kind of rebuilding in the WAC right now, Um, Boise would be the logical team, I I, I think Boise loses at least one game, maybe two, I just think that, I I think that that Kellen Moore is so good, and, and I think that he masked a lot of, deficiencies that they had and that's kind of a weird thing to say because I think they were the number one scoring team in college football last year no they weren't because obviously Oregon was but they were top five but you know I, I I wasn't totally impressed with their offensive line and I know Doug Martin rushed for a lot of yards but I felt like their offensive line should have been more dominant and then you kind of look at the two receivers that they lost Titus Young and, and Austin Pettis I, the point being that I, I think that a lot of those kind of you know, four play, eighty-two yard drives that Boise always seemed to put together, you know, two or three times a game last year. Like, I just think it's gonna be harder for them to score points. I, I think that, you know, losing a few guys on the line is gonna make it tougher to run. Losing those two receivers is going to make it tougher to pass. And because of that, you know, I just look at the situation and I see them getting tripped up somewhere, whether it's against TCU, although that game will be at home, maybe against George in the opening week. I still am going back and forth on that one. I know that Boise plays uh, at San Diego State later in the year, I, I think that Boise is going to lose a game probably. I think that Kellen Moore's so good that he's going to make up for the deficiencies kind of everywhere else. But like I said, I just don't see it as easy for them to score this year. The defense still has a lot of talent, but they lost a few guys too. I, I don't see it this year. Is the point? And um, you know, like I said, I, I think that. Um, you know, if this was, this would be the year, because I think that we're going to probably see at least one team with with a, a loss in the BCS National Championship game, but I just, I don't like the way that things kind of are for, for any of the non-AQs and even the really good ones like Boise and TCU.
0: Uh, I actually really like you bringing up the receiving core from last year because there's uh, obvious parallels between the uh, Georgia game and Va Tech last year. And realistically down the stretch, it was, uh, it was that Young and Pettis combination that ended up winning that game for Boise. Um, so, I think that's really going to uh, be tremendous. And then for Georgia, of course, uh, expectations high for them, and uh, Mark Rick sort of on a hot seat. Is Georgia a team? I know you said that you anticipate the SEC beating up on one another, but is Georgia potentially an Auburn like dark horse that could play for the title?
1: You know, I've made that case. I don't know that they're an Auburn like national championship contender. I think that they're probably, you know. I, they're they're pretty thin, especially on defense, especially kind of in the front seven. But so was Auburn last year. And, you know, Auburn kind of had those dominant players on each side of the ball that, you know, Cam Newton and Nick Fairley. Um, I think Georgia's going to be better than people think. And I also kind of have made the point that I think that Georgia's going to win the East. I think that um, I've said it kind of all offseason, I, I, I'll take South Carolina's talent and I'll take Georgia's schedule. Uh, of Georgia's six biggest games, only one of them is kind of a true road game. Uh, and then you kind of look at who they don't play and they don't play the three kind of big bad boys from the SEC West, Alabama, LSU, and Arkansas. And I, I just have a really tough time finding a lot of losses on their schedule. And to your point, I I think that if they can win those first two games, those first two games of their whole season, I think if they win those two games, they're going to get on a roll where they might finish 11-1 or 10-2 in the regular season because once you get past Boise on a neutral field, which isn't neutral, I mean, you know, everyone calls it a neutral field. You get past Boise and then you you play South Carolina the next week and then the schedule kind of opens up and, you know, you're looking at a situation where, There's a lot of kind of good teams that have question marks, whether it's Florida on a neutral field, whether it's Tennessee on the road, whether it's Auburn at home, whether it's Mississippi State at home. I mean, none of those are kind of surefire, um, you know, no doubt about it losses. And and I could see a scenario where if they can get those first two wins, especially... um, where they start to make moves and and all of a sudden you're looking at mid-November and they're you know nine and one or ten and one and even if they lose those two games or or one of the two or whatever I I still do think they're going to kind of pull out the east I
0: I like you mentioning the neutral field because I sort of feel like for that game to get made Boise State should have demanded Georgia come to Idaho and play at the Kibbe Dome next year but I can't (laughs) imagine that's going to happen but Uh, I don't
1: what kind of uh, poll Boise has over in Moscow, because I don't think they like Boise very much over
0: there. Uh, they don't, they don't, but if they can get uh, a few thousand more bodies in in the Kibby Dome, I'm sure that they would probably go for that. Plus, I yeah. want to see a, a two top 25 teams play there, because that's hands down my favorite venue in all of college football. It's just, it, it's my high school gym, basically, that I played basketball games in, oh, yeah. so, you know, I, 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 I love seeing college football played in it, so I
1: thing. I had never seen it until last year's Boise game, and I was watching with a buddy on a Friday night, and I was like, is this thing for real? Like, Is this new? How have I never heard of this? But uh, I was going to say, I think the play for Boise would be to, to demand that Georgia comes to Boise and that Boise gets to wear their blue-on-blue uniforms that the Mountain West won't let them wear anymore. That'd be my play if
0: I was Boise. Oh, I, I like you mentioned the uniform, because I was actually going to say, uh, talking about that Georgia-Boise State game, which is Uh, along with Oregon LSU, the the two that I'm most looking forward to on kickoff weekend. Boise unveiled its uniform today. Georgia unveiled its earlier this week. Both of them a little space-aged. Mark Anus over on, uh, and Mark, if I uh, butchered your last name, please light me up. Uh, On Twitter, he compared them to Stormtrooper outfits from Star Wars. I want to get your thoughts on the combat pros that are going to be worn there in Game 1.
1: You know, I, I, I'm i not a big uniform guy. Like, I kind of just don't really care. Like, it's just not my thing. Like, I don't know. if I guess probably uh, if somebody saw me dressed up on a Friday night, they would see that kind of dress is not my kind of area of expertise. Um, I saw them. I thought they were kind of cool looking and kind of weird. And I kind of just moved on to the next thing. Like, you know, you mentioned kind of, uh, you know, the website that I'm working with a few other writers with, Crystal Ball Run. And it was kind of like one of those things where I was like, is this something that we should write about that we shouldn't like i just don't have an opinion like they're they're weird looking don't get me wrong they're gonna you know i guess make for good tv i mean you know i i don't really have an opinion on them though either way um, you know i i guess that this is just if it makes the kids happy I you know i say let them have it but i i honestly don't have any opinion either way i'm sorry that that's kind of a disappointing answer but i, I just really don't
0: Oh no, not at all i i like jumping in the uniform talk because some people get so heated about it but uh... I, I personally, I like to make fun on Twitter, but on Twitter, I, probably about 90% of what I say is total garbage anyway. So uh, that kind of falls in the same category. And uh, the Friday night thing, uh, is it the Jersey Shore V-neck? That's, uh, is that the big look in Connecticut that you usually go with?
1: No, but um, no, I'm, I, listen, I dress to impress. All right, I was just teasing. I'm actually a very good dresser. Thank you very much. Um, but no, it's funny because everybody always – gives me a hard time um about it and you know the jersey shore thing i think you know for those of you who've only lived out west like new york and long island and new jersey like that's how people really are and uh, i had a roommate who was just like that and he was the same kind of guy and i i love jersey shore because it just it reminds me of people that i know like i'm a very um you know uh I, I guess, uh, I don't know what the right word is, but I'm not a very flashy dresser. Like, I don't have any, like, you know, Deion Sanders jewelry or anything like that. Um, and I like to, you know, but, uh, but no, I mean, the point being, I'm rambling again, but is the, uh, the Jersey Shore thing is real. It's definitely a real situation down in, uh, and I didn't even mean to say it like that, but, uh, uh, in, in Jersey and in New York, there really are a lot of people like that. It's actually really terrifying. And, um, you know, watching that show kind of hits a little too close to home sometimes.
0: So, <laughs> well, we're recording this on Thursday, and uh, of course, it's on tonight. My wife and I make it a make it a priority to catch every episode, uh, no matter what it does to our brain cells. And I, one of my best friends from U of A, is a New Jersey guy from Livingston originally, and he's he's told me that that is indeed the the true lifestyle. And uh, I have another buddy, beautiful. yes, I have another uh, Arizona friend. Who's a, a rock DJ, uh Dan Soder, and he actually has it as part of his uh part of his act, uh what he refers to as the Long Island Meathead. Uh, he's a stand up comedian. So uh I recommend checking that out. It's it's good stuff. Uh
1: you have no idea. It, it's it's unbel- it, like literally this kid that I lived with was like a much less cool version of these guys. Like would he'd like I I distinctly remember, you know, we were Like in our early 20s, you know, just right out of school and, you know, you know, whatever. And this kid, you know, used to roll out of bed at like 10 o'clock, get up, hop in the shower, put gel in his hair, uh, go to the gym, (laughs) work out, come home, shower, put more gel in his hair and go to work. And that was just like it was just everything was always an event with him. Like, you know, I'd be like, you know, you want to go grab a burger or something, you know, it'd be like a 45 minute you know, time commitment that I'd have to wait for him to pick out the right shirt. And I'm like, dude, we're going to Burger King. You know what I mean? Like, let's, let's, you know, we're going to grab a shake and a Whopper, like calm down, you know, but it's a real thing. And, and I love Jersey Shore personally. I will be watching myself later this evening. Um, But it is a very real thing here on the East coast. I'm proud to say that the part of Connecticut that I grew up in, we're just regular, you know, white collar, uh, you know jeans and uh, you know a nice button-down kind of kind of crowd, and uh, I definitely don't dabble in any kind of Jersey Shore-related uh, <laughs> c- clothing uh, attire decisions for on my my weekend evenings. So,
0: uh, I think Rutgers should try to incorporate Jersey Shore into their football scheme. If they can somehow incorporate the Swarovski crystals into their jerseys, you'll see them turn into a national powerhouse immediately.
1: Well, they did it like. Right when they first started getting good, they tried to incorporate James Gandolfini from uh, from what's it called, the Sopranos, and then everyone in Jersey got offended because, you know, whatever, uh, but I, listen, I'm all for it, I mean, Rutgers has to make a splash, you know, Greg Sciano's kind of, uh, his time is, uh, you know, he's, he's losing the patience of some people that uh, had his, that he had earned their kind of trust and respect, so I mean, it's time to shake things up, and you know, if that means going to, I don't know what, but anything to kind of get people going, I guess.
0: Absolutely. And in New Jersey, basically your options are the Sopranos, the Toxic Avenger, or Jersey Shore. So you've got to incorporate one of those three into Rutgers football. And if they get back on the Gandolfini bandwagon, I think you'll see them where they're back into that like 2006 level, playing for the Big East title.
1: That was the time. I think Gandolfini, like, he was at all their games or something. I can't remember. It was a while ago now. But they definitely tried to figure out a way to incorporate him because Uh, you know, at the time, you know, they were kind of trying to make their own kind of identity nationally, and they definitely uh, kind of manipulated that Soprano situation to their benefit. It was kind of goofy at the time, but actually, you know, uh, and I'm rambling again, I'll tell you a true story. I was given free tickets to a Nets game two years ago, and this was the year that the Nets like literally won like 11 games that year or something, and uh, I didn't even want to go, but I got free tickets, and I was like, you know, screw it, I'll drive down, so I drove down with a friend, and they used the Jersey Shore fist pump video to try to get people in the crowd excited, so that's your uh, Jersey Shore sports cultural reference kind of all wrapped into one there, so...
0: I love it, and quite frankly, I can't think of a better note to go out on. You, get, you, get, you got every possible uh, spectrum covered there. So. Uh, it
1: was a tough night, let me tell
0: you. But. <laughs> I think they all are with the Nets. but uh, yeah. uh, Oh boy, there might not be an NBA season this year, so uh, they might be spared a little bit of embarrassment. Cr- Chris Humphreys can take care of embarrassing the Nets all he needs to for the next couple of months. Well,
1: you know, I don't know. He, I think he... Uh, spent about like three years worth of salary on his engagement ring so he, he'll be playing basketball somewhere I'm sure
0: But absolutely <laughs> well Aaron man I want to thank you again for taking the time to uh, appear on the podcast and uh, why don't you let everybody know where they can check out your work
1: yeah sure um, you know my personal website is Aaron AaronTorresDashboards. dot com, and you know I'm sure you'll have it up on the page. I don't, I'm not going to spell it out or anything, but yeah. <laughs> AaronTorresDashboards. dot com is kind of, I like to, you know, I, I like to do kind of long form columns, kind of you know take things from a certain angle and kind of dissect it from all angles and stuff like that. Um, you know, Crystal Ball Run, as you mentioned, blog U N S kind of homepage for all kinds of college football news, opinion. You know, we do all kinds of things, not just kind of news stories, but also kind of fun, featurey things. That's kind of a collaboration I'm involved with with three or four other guys. We're doing, I think, pretty good work over there. But uh, you know, check them both out. You know, definitely. Uh, clearly, uh, as you can tell by some of my long-winded responses, I love talking college football. And you know, I encourage anybody to you know track me down, ask me questions, tell me why I'm an idiot. Uh, you know, when Boise goes 12 and 0 and plays for national championship and. You know, Florida State six and six, and uh, EJ Manuel gets benched. Then you know you can tell me what kind of idiot I am. But, anyways, I appreciate the time, and uh, yeah, check me out, and uh, thank you for having me on.
0: Absolutely, and thank you for listening.